Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 59 of Yogaland. On today's episode, I talked to Jason Niemer, the co-founder of Acro Yoga. It's taken Jason Niemer and I, oh, about eight or nine months to get this interview going. He is a busy man. He has been on the road teaching Acro full-time. He's been traveling for the past seven years. So he's been traveling all around the world and he's really created a movement of teachers and active thriving communities. And it's a practice that's a whole lot of fun. And that's, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to Jason, because I think it can get very stale sometimes to just do solo practice all the time. And it can be fun to mix things up. I also wanted to talk to Jason because I think he is exceptional at teaching and talking about the deeper benefits of this practice. Acro is such a beautiful practice. So physically stunning and challenging and exciting. And those are all great things. But Jason's able to communicate the deeper benefits as well. And, you know, what I get from him is that he really feels like this practice can help people tap into their unknown potential to see more possibilities in life than obstacles. And to truly connect with other people and to become better communicators and better listeners. So these are all things that we need more of in our lives and whether or not we do yoga. I just love talking about the ways that yoga can help us in our daily lives and relationships. If for some reason you haven't seen Acro Yoga before, I'm going to put a link on the show notes page to a flash mob that happened in Israel about a year and a half ago. So you can get a sense of just the playfulness and the beauty of the practice. And you might notice that in this conversation, Jason and I keep referring to a previous conversation we had. We did do this interview about a month before and we just ran into major technical difficulties. So he was kind enough to do the interview again. And we both actually at the end of this interview said, oh, wow, that was even more fun because we we'd kind of warmed up from the previous interview and got to just talk and get to know each other a little better. So without further ado, enjoy the interview with Jason. So I would love to start by asking you, the last time I think I saw you face-to-face, Yoga was still a partnership, so you were still doing it with Jenny Sauer Klein, and that's changed, and you weren't traveling nearly as much, and that's changed. So I would just love to know, like, what are you doing right now, and kind of what's your vision of what you're doing, or what you've been doing? Well, I'm actually going to have to show you, I think I can... Turn this around. Boom. This is the periodic chart of Acro Yoga that I've been working on. So Whoa. I'm a super science nerd and I'm just reorganizing the practice as I'm running around the world, meeting with investors, doing business deals, growing the practice on scalable levels, digital marketing, digital media companies. So my life is expanding as it has been my whole life, going deeper in all the things that I do and learning and growing and practicing and failing and (laughs) recollecting thoughts and energies. and Yeah. So meeting with investors and things like that. One of the things when we last spoke, you know, you you said you have a goal of having a billion people do acro before you croak. Yes. So 
A, you know, why is that vision important to you? And then B, the fact that you're having these meetings, are you, are you thinking about expanding ACRO into like kind of the institutional world? Like in other words, corporations, education, things like that? I've brainstormed the curriculum in many directions, whether it's for families, schools, corporate, all of the vision of where it can grow is there. And and now it's learning how to scale these things and learning how to do the back end work, basically build the systems before launching the programs, because I launched this whole thing from a passion and from a practice. And then I tried to catch the business up to the practice. So now it's for the first time looking at it from the other side and being strategic about how we grow and develop and expand the practice, whether it's the content or it's the marketing around it and the plan around how we're going to build it and make it profitable so it will grow to reach more people. Right. And so for people who aren't as familiar with you and all the work that you do or, and haven't actually been in the room, in an acro room, I mean, I feel like at this point, everyone's seen acro, right? Like people have a familiarity with it. But for people who haven't been in the room with an acro teacher, why do you think it's such a powerful practice? Why do you think it's so important that it, it spreads around the world? I see people being less and less connected to other people. They're more connected to their devices and I feel that it's important to learn how to trust strangers and to rewrite that script. I feel like the governments predominantly have scared us into thinking that we cannot trust anymore. And there's a lot of fear in the media. So I see this as a way for people to rebuild their ability to assess risk, to trust people, to communicate. And there's not any person that can't benefit by having those tools enhanced. Yeah. That is the truth every day. Like the fear factor seems to be growing exponentially. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. And there's some scary things happening in the world right now. And it makes us want to have community and want to have people that we can trust even more. So the more that we're seeing that we're fearing, the more that we want to have a safety net of people that know how to physically and emotionally catch each other. Yeah. So most of the time when you're going into a teaching situation with ACRO, I mean, it sounds like it's people who want to be there and like want to be open and want to engage in the practice. Have you ever had situations where you've gone in and that hasn't been the case? Like, for example, at a corporation or where people aren't necessarily as trusting at first? And like, how do you handle that? So two instances on the other sides of the extremes. One was in a Bedouin camp in Jordan and the other was a Bloomberg article in New York. And It was the same thing that there were some people that were really open to it and some people that weren't. And the Bloomberg one, the woman that wouldn't engage in the practice was the woman that was the reporter. And to me, that was the most important person in the room to get up. She was like, I'm not doing this. Everyone else in the room did. She didn't. And then at the Bedouin village that I was at, you know, these are people in turbans and they're smoking their shisha and I'm this white California Mexican kid there, like really awkward in the beginning. They started sharing food and then we started doing the practice and they started giggling and I knew they wanted to do it. So one guy I just grabbed and I pretty much invited him onto my hands and feet and flew him. And obviously many of his other friends were like, hell no, I'm not doing that. But a few (laughs) of them did. And it was really cool to see that the barriers are the same and the joy on the other side of breaking those barriers down are the same. Yeah, that's nice. I think I saw you, I don't know, it was several months ago in your feed flying a little baby. Do you remember that? It was so cute. Probably Claudine and Hansa's Sophia. Oh, the was it? Little, little baby I've seen in a while. Yeah, I see a lot of... I didn't know they named her Sophia. That's my daughter's name. 
Yeah, oh, two for one. Yeah. Sophie, I believe, actually. Okay. Don't, don't get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sophie in Europe, they usually call Sophia's Sophie. So that might be like at Sophia's school, they call her Sophie because it's an Italian school. Both of them are cute. Yeah. What are some of like the most interesting flying situations you've done lately? I feel like I just always see you experimenting and doing crazy things. Well, <laughs> so one is I, I've learned how to shoot a basketball from my feet while I'm in a handstand. And nice. I had all that success as my favorite NBA team, second favorite <gasps> NBA team won the finals. So I was just mixing <laughs> basketball and acro. So first I learned it in a handstand and I was super excited about that. Then I thought, well, maybe I can have somebody hold me in a hand to hand and I'll do it. And that worked. And I'm like, all right, screw this. Let's have them stand up. And I'm going to shoot from the free throw line. And I hit the rim like twice. And I've had maybe <laughs> 10 tries. So this thing that I thought was impossible in a week long period, not even a week, four days, it became totally unlocked and something that was like, okay, sure, I'll do that now. But you are a super ninja with superpowers. <laughs> you are. Thank you. Well, I, I train. I was born with it, but I also train yes, all the time. That's true. That's true. Let's talk a little bit about your training. Can you tell me, when did you start acrobatics when you were a kid? When I was 12. When you were, oh, okay. That's actually a little old for a kid to start. Which is probably why I kept with it. I think a lot of kids that start younger, they burn out by their teenage years. Yep. That was me with dance. By the time I was 12, 13, I was like, I'm not in New York. I'm not in New York yet. I can't do this. I can't do yeah. this anymore. You know? So intensive training while you were a kid and in your teens, intensive competition. Pretty much until 23. 23 is when I stopped competing. And then I, you know, pretty much said, okay, I'll go to college. I'll become an adult. That didn't work so well. I kept doing some kind of gymnastics or acrobatics on the side and yeah, my training, as soon as yoga hit my life, my training went spiritual, food. I was vegetarian seven years, like a lot of really big changes in my life that were, they became part of my training as well. I trained as a yogi and I'm continuing my, my experiments as a yogi. Yeah, and everything in between. I've been doing ninja training. I did a triathlon for the first time this year. So it's been a lot of different things. Have you maintained contact with acrobatics teachers as you've developed acro yoga or have you mainly just like combined everything on your own and you're just constantly working it out on your own? I still run into amazing acrobats around the world and I still learn. I wouldn't say I'm training and I haven't been training for a long time. For me to train, I have to have a partner and with my lifestyle traveling all the time, that's not too reasonable. Yeah. And I've got so much that I've already learned. I just need to digest and disseminate. So I'm not in a place that I feel like I need more acrobatic training in my life. I want to train people at higher levels. I want to be with people for three and six months in a row instead of two weeks. Mm, that would be cool. Yeah, it yeah. will be. When you were talking about the handstand and shooting the basket from your, your hands. Feet. Uh, sorry, feet. feet. <laughs> yeah, that would be really incredible. <laughs> feet. Feet <and> <laughs> I was hovering. I was levitating. <laughs> <laughs> it made me think of how, you know, I think such a big part of being a yoga teacher is showing people their potential. Sometimes people know they have untapped potential, but I feel like, especially with the yoga practice, there's so much potential that you don't even know is there. And then you start doing yoga and you're just like, whoa, oh my God, a year ago, I couldn't blah, blah, blah. And now I'm floating into this. I'm not a regular acro practitioner, although I am really wanting to start going with Jason because our kid- That would is, be awesome. Yeah, it would be so nice. You know, our kid is old enough that we can go do things together now. and. 
it would just be such a nice way for us to spend time together. And there's some good teachers in SF. Yeah, there's actually, anyway, well, I'll talk to you about that later, but. (laughs) Cool. So anyway, I'm not really like in the active acro community, but just from watching, it looks to me like, like there's even more of that, of doing things that you never could have imagined you would do. Do you see that in your students? That is a regular part of the practice forever because when you first start, you have so many big ahas. I mean, the first one is I can be upside down and relaxed and in control of my body. And that doesn't take that long. People can learn that in three months if they have good instruction. And once they learn they can be upside down and they learn they can support people that are bigger than them, these things, once the mind opens, the the rest is super fun to go deeper because like me shooting a basketball in my feet in a handstand, it's not like you won't keep discovering new things that you can do with your body. You just got to get past the first big mental obstacles of what you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for people who are listening, who have seen all of the really, you know, impressive, maybe a little bit daunting kind of Uh images of Acro online, I guess I I just want you to explain the therapeutic piece and kind of how people can start when they start the practice that it is accessible. There's many parts of the practice. There's partner stretching, there's Thai massage, and we do a thing called therapeutic flying, which is basically acrobats spend a lot of time upside down doing things with each other, but the flyer is always engaged. And when the flyer learns how to relax as they're upside down, then they can receive a therapeutic treatment that includes massage with the base's hands and just their body hanging on the base's legs. So as we learn how to let go of our muscle contractions, the plumb line of the spine finds center because it's hanging. So there's intelligence and gravity and intelligence and just trusting somebody with your body weight as you relax more. Yeah. If you are not the most flexible person or if you're a little bit older and you're, you're kind of new to yoga... Do you feel like someone could still walk into like an intro level acro class and be fine? You know, it really depends on the skillfulness of the teacher. And there are teachers that I've trained and there's teachers that I have not trained that are out there teaching. So the quality of your instruction, just like if you go to a fitness gym and you take a yoga class and they tell you to go into Lotus and they don't tell you how, are you going to destroy your knee and say, yoga is bad for me or the teacher didn't give me progressions? There are tons of progressions and tons of ways to help people step into the practice step by step where it's not jumping off a cliff your first move. It's something like, okay, I didn't know I could do that. Okay, cool. Now let me try this. Great. And you have a spotter here. We teach it in groups of three with support and communication is built in as well. Yeah. I always tell people, I don't know how you, if you agree with this or not, but I always tell people, you know, just trust your gut. And if you have a teacher who's saying to you, no, really, you can try it this way. And that still doesn't feel right. It's still okay to say to the teacher, I'm just not comfortable. And it kind of tells you a lot about the teacher. Like if they're very uncomfortable with that response, might not be a teacher that just resonates with you and that you want to go back to. You just want to find someone who feels better for you. Yeah. And as you bring it up, I think the same thing as a doctor. A lot of people give up their control to doctors. Like it's your body. You have to listen to your body and you have to communicate what you feel from your body. And if a doctor, a teacher, a lover, a friend can't listen to that, it's not something that you need to keep going with. You just, okay, thank you and ciao. That is so true. Not to get off track, but I switched to UCSF. Uh a couple years ago when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I had never been to UCSF. It's like one of the best institutions in the country. And I remember being kind of, I don't know, it was just a little confusing to me because when you go to see a doctor at UCSF, they're very collaborative. 
you know, so they're very much like, here's an option, here's an option, here's an option, here's an option, here's an option. How do you feel about that? And then you have to kind of like absorb and then go, well, yeah, that's a huge upgrade. Oh my God. It's huge. It's huge. It puts a lot of responsibility on you. So when you're in a a Uh life-threatening situation, it's a little overwhelming, you know, because you're just like, wait, but just tell me what to do. Yeah. You know, I see that. But at the end of the day, you feel better about every choice that you make because you feel like you made the choice. It's so nice to hear positive stories about Western medicine because it doesn't get out enough that they are doing a lot of things right. And that's awesome to hear that. Those people were superheroes to me. Like I, I kind of have like a tear in my eye when I think about them. They were just incredible. I mean, these people are devoting their lives to a really difficult day-to-day care practice. It's hard. Yeah. You know, cancer is just a web that despite what the media tells us, like we're not that close to really unweaving it. So it's, it can be really heavy. And I don't know, I kind of blown away that people have the level of skill that they have too. like my surgeons, like the way that my body looks after my surgery is kind of amazing. I was expecting to feel like really butchered. It's not like that anymore. Awesome. Yeah. It's like people are so refined, like the things that they, oh, it's incredible. It's really incredible. Right on. Yeah. So go UCSF. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's a good place. It's a really good place. But like you said, it's also even there. It's so much of it is like the vibe. Like, do you vibe with this person as well as that person? And like, mm-hmm. you can make a change. Like you said, you can always make a change. Even if you don't feel necessarily empowered to do so, you got to empower yourself to do so. Yeah, because if you don't listen to that voice, there's nobody that's going to be able to skillfully say it for you. No priest, no partner, no parents. You got to learn to listen to that voice and let it guide you and then have people reflect. And if you're making a bunch of stupid choices in a row and all your friends are saying the same thing, then it's time to check yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. that acro has like a special unique additional skill set that you learn that you don't necessarily learn in yoga on your own mat and that's like the communication aspect mm-hmm. how do you see people grow in that way or like what is it about it that catalyzes that growth i think honesty being the root of good communication so if you don't have a life-threatening situation, you don't have to communicate honestly or clearly. But if you're doing something acrobatically that's scary and that you're pushing your boundaries, you learn how to communicate really skillfully. And even more important than that, you learn how to be receptive deeply, especially on the basis perspective. You listen with your skin, with your bones, with your muscles, with your eyes, with your heart. Everything is listening and being present. And when you co-create that kind of space, you're going to develop as... Uh, a listener and a communicator. And then there's also the bodywork aspect where listening to your quality of touch and being able to communicate honestly, hey, that hurts, it's too much. These are all things that culturally are very difficult for many people. And as we break out of culture and we drop into honest partnership, we get those upgrades. Yeah, the last time we, we spoke, we talked a little bit about the different cultures. You know, you've traveled so much over the past like seven to 10 years. I mean, how long, how much have you been on the road? 
full-time for seven, pretty darn full-time for 10. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You could like write a whole travel, like how to self-care travel. Okay. Okay, good. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's, you have- It's in the works. Yeah. You've had so many things. I got to get off the road, then I'm going to gen- generate a lot of content. I guess I'm wondering like from all of that experience and you know, what just what you were talking about earlier about how much fear there is in the world and like disconnection, like genuine real disconnection right now. Do you notice more similarities between all of us or do you notice more differences or does it just depend on the day? The city people are the city people, the people that are moving fast on their phones in a rush. And that's probably 70% of the people that I see because I travel a lot in cities because mm. I teach where there's a lot of you know density of humanity. Culturally, there are some differences. There are some places that are uniquely separated from that speed of life. Bali, Thailand, I haven't been to Vietnam yet, but there are definitely some places in Asia that really have a different frequency. Jamaica, there are places that are slower, but I think it really depends on what kind of vibration you're looking for. You'll find a lot of those, if you want to move fast, you're going to be lifted by the people that are moving fast. And if you want to slow down, there is a lot of variety for sure. Hmm, That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Growing up, I grew up in the suburbs and I always knew I wanted to live in in a city, like probably from the time I was seven years old. I just, Mm -hmm. my parents would take me to any city and I would be like, I want to live here. I want to live here. I want to live here. I never thought of it as like that, really that energy just picks you up more and that that's more suitable for certain. If you're more kapha and you need a little more fire, the city can produce that fire for you. Mm, Yeah. 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 Whereas you might think if you're more kapha, like you need to relax I don't know you might think like oh well the compliment you know the the comfortable place would be to be in a mellow situation but yeah having your opposite and one of my main teachers Dharmamitra has lived most of his life in New York City so I've studied with him in New York City so I think that there is a lot of beauty about practicing deep yoga practices in crazy places whether it's in India or in the jungle of New York City Oh my gosh, 100%. Whenever I go to yoga class in New York, it feels different. It feels so, yeah, it feels charged. Yeah, really charged. And like when you drop in, you like really drop in. Also, because in the summer, I'm usually there in the summer and it's like so hot and humid and you're just like... Thank God for air conditioning. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is suitable for Dharma Mitra about living in the city? Like he he seems like such a gentle soul. Yeah, I think it's his karma and his dharma, and he sees the two very similarly. Mm-hmm. So he met his, his guru in New York City, and he trained in New York City, and to help the people in the city, and to feed off of the depravity of souls that are there, mm-hmm. and the people that need to be spiritually lifted and, and woken up. I think he's very fed by that on the service level. He wants to be on the beach, probably in Brazil. Hanging yeah, out. I know. That's also, what I would think. He's got his family raised now. He's got granddaughter. And now there's a grandkid involved. You know, grandparents don't have any decisions. The grandkids are going to be tugging at their heartstrings. So yeah. I think he's in a good place. And I think yogis in general thrive where there's a lot of energy, whether it's spiritual energy or chaotic city energy. Mm. So you're talking about hoping to settle down a little more in one place. Have you figured out where you're going to go or are you still trying to figure that out? I've got a triangle. It's uh, Miami, California, Mexico. Ooh, yeah. Little New York thrown in there, but basically just 
making my globe smaller. Mm-hmm. Not the entire globe, but kind of the That's Latino, smart. California, New York globe. I love that. Yeah. Were you born in Mexico? I was. Were you, which city? Mexico City. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I love Mexico City so much. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And then you grew up in Northern Cal. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up gringo. I had to learn Spanish in my 20s to really like claim being Mexican and meeting my family and just spending time with them every year for several, several years now. Yeah. Yeah. We had a previous interview where we had some tech issues and I totally appreciate you redoing it. This one was way better anyway, because you didn't plan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But the one thing that I loved that you said in the last interview, I thought about it for days after that was, I think I asked you, I asked you, you know, did you ever imagine yourself to be this person who's bringing together people in so many different cultures and so many different situations? Like where you voted most gregarious in high school or something like that. And you said something to the effect of, you know, you never felt like you fit in one specific culture because you were born in Mexico, grew up in California. Are you, you're also Lebanese? Is that? Yeah. Well, I just got my 23 and me stats back. So you did? I can, I can update the story. Tell me, tell me. Because I just got mine too. Awesome. I will recap a little bit. Um, so yeah, I grew up as a white kid in California, but I knew I had Mexican family and I knew my last name meant tiger in Arabic. And so this kind of confusion about who I am got stronger as I got older. And then when I dipped into the cultures and I learned what it meant to be a Mexican and all these other things, and I met my family in Lebanon. So I got the 23 and me shit back and I'm 42% Italian. <gasps> So I, I got on the phone immediately. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many reasons. Yeah. And I was in Italy when I got the results and I'm looking around. I'm like, I just don't believe it, but I got to believe it. So I got on the phone with my parents. I'm like, all right, I want to know which one of your grandparents had an Italian lover. You guys need to go spit in a vial and let me know Seriously? what's up. Seriously? <laughs> oh, my gosh. But it actually makes sense because Lebanon was conquered by Romans, Greeks, Turks, um. So I have Roman blood. It's not Italian. I'm, st- I'm still <laughs> coming to terms with the fact that I'm not German. I thought it was a quarter German. Wow. No, I have German culture. I had grandparents that came from Germany to America, but there you go. They were Italians that went north and said, "Okay, we like cabbage now." <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, you look very northern Italian now that you say that because you have blue eyes. You know. But I have 12% Lebanese. Like it did, it did sneak in and I got like 1% North African. So I. I was really hoping to have some African because like at least, you know, I'm, so I got 86% <laughs> Southern Italian, which, so I got mine and I was a little bit like, wah, wah. Southern European. No, Southern Italian. 86% okay. baby. Wow. Boom. Purebred. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, I was like, my people were so poor. They didn't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> But I thought for sure, like, you know, there might be some African because like it's so close, Southern Italy Uh and like nothing. Yeah. And also everybody thinks I'm Jewish. So I thought like that might be more clear. It's not totally clear, but I did get something like 5% Caucasus, which would be like Georgia, Azerbaijan, like that would be. Gypsies. You got a little gypsy going on. Yeah. And then I did get, I think, 7% Middle Eastern. So yeah. Yeah. So there was some kind of interesting, but that part is, you know, they I did Ancestry.com. So it's like says trace. So they don't really Uh know 
exactly where in those places. But Southern Italy, it's like, boom, done. We're done with that. And the funny thing is on my dad's side, we all thought we were Northern Italian. Like he's got the blue eyes and the red hair. And like the family says they're from Bologna, yada, yada. And it's like, I didn't get any Northern Italian. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know who's trying to make us sound fancier there because, you know, there's that rivalry. Of course, there always will be. Yeah. And for me, it was just good to take one step further in the idea of racism. And just I had an identity of what my race was. And it's it's interesting to have it. And it's interesting to have it shattered to just look at all the other things that we can shatter with our minds. If we're looking at the big picture, we are all the same race. We are all the same race. We have different flavors, but it's not, there are no races. And the thing that's set up with all these forms, black, white, Hispanic, all that shit is shit that we don't deserve mm. to look at or look through. We, we really are not holding humanity at its highest potential by having those categories and by interacting in the way that we are as a society, as a global society. And Americans, wow, you should be ashamed right now. I know, I know. Change some things and it's happening. Yeah, I know. It's like, it just feels sort of, shocking how suddenly we're just mentally so behind the times you know it just doesn't it's like but it's probably a good eye-opener for everyone yeah and it's it's progress because that's the only thing that can come from really difficult situations and to take it back to basketball fucking love basketball i don't know (laughs) if i'm allowed to swear but i just snuck it in (laughs) the nba finals the Cavaliers were down 3-0 and they had one of the most amazing games ever because they were in a really gnarly situation and they stepped up and did things that they never knew they could. So I feel like as our environment gets more and more harsh, we're forced to step up in ways that we never have before as individuals and as community. And it's beautiful to feel that counter, not even counter, that complementary energy that's developing. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to start doing the podcast is because I wanted to kind of bridge for people. I I wanted to talk about and just show a big audience of people that yoga is not just what we do in the studio. It's not just like for our own bodies and minds. It's for everyone that we come into contact with. And I wanted to kind of talk about like, how are we actually affecting change? How are we really pushing the envelope? So what do you think about that when you think about ACRA? Like what potential do you think it has for affecting the larger world and the community. Well, going back even to what you were saying just about your own yoga practice, how are you affecting? If you're actually practicing yoga, which to me is a pretty clear statement, you're doing some sort of asana, you're doing some sort of meditation, you're doing something that is quantifiable as your CrossFit is not necessary. You can be a yogi about doing CrossFit, but if you're not doing yoga. So I think if people are staying on the path and they're going deeper They're learning more about who they are and where their shit is and where they're projecting and where they're judging. And the more that we can all keep coming back to our mats and rediscovering the curiosity about who we are and, you know, unwork the patterns that are keeping us in these cycles that are not affirming us and the people around us. So that's the first part. And the second part with acro yoga is it's fun to do. So getting on your mat and doing your hard practice, like that's not, the, the effects are good, but it's not always fun. Acro can always be fun. And mm. You can choose choose a way to interact with it that it's going to uplift you and the people around you. So it's not about how deep you're going to go as a yogi as much as you're just going to have fun and play with your friends. And mm-hmm. A lot of other good things can happen. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's such a nice thing about it is that I don't know if this was intentional on your part or if it just happened, but that you just often so often see people doing it in public spaces. PDAs, public displays of acronyms. Oh, okay, so it was intentional. Yeah. <laughs> yes and no. It's but yeah, continue. it just happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's just like when you see people, let's say like you're in Dolores Park, you see people doing it, you're gonna stop and look. You're gonna kind of see, even if you don't decide to do it yourself, it is uplifting. Like it, it does look fun. It's funny and fun to watch. And like you said, like you can tell it's not all about perfection. It's more about experimenting. Like people fall down. It's as long as it's safe, it's not a big deal. You know, it's just, I mean, I just think you've done such a great job at leading things in that direction. Awesome. And I do want to take a little bit of credit and it's very little. It's just, it, that's how it was for Jenny and I when we interfaced with each other and it's not that we designed it that way. It's that what came through us was fun. And the way that we presented it to the world is it's not fun if it's not approachable and it's not fun if it's dangerous. So if we can make something safe and approachable, then it's fun. And that's, that's what we've done. And there yeah. are enough people doing it now. There's enough wisdom in the humans around the world that it already is a viral practice. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. We're absolutely glad it worked a second time. Me Way too. The first. Me Not too. the first was horrible, but no. we had a lot of obstacles. <laughs> we did. It was a little, was it, just for those listening, I was like holding my cell phone up to the microphone. It wasn't quite, it wasn't quite meant to be the first time. We're talking so. Sacramento and San Francisco. We were two hours apart. I wasn't calling you from Beirut, which could happen on our next call. I know. We could have used tin cans and like probably gotten a better, uh, better reception than last time. So, so it was meant to be this time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, enjoy the rest of your time in Miami. Thanks so much for listening. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 59. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And until next week, enjoy your practice.